Well, I hope everybody had a good Christmas time with uh, family, friends, and whatever. Uh, we had family over, cooked a beautiful prime rib, probably one of the best ones I've ever cooked. So came out really good, and everybody had their fill, and we had a good time of remembrance of why we gather together on Christmas, and it was a lot of fun watching my two little grandbabies open up gifts. Uh, Lila, who's three, and Zoe, who's nine months. Poor Zoe didn't know what was going on, but Lila sure did. <laughs> it was amazing to watch it. There's no rhyme or reason for opening packages. It's just ripping and seeing what's inside. Um, but it was a fun time. Well, I don't know about you, but I uh, look towards the end of the year, and I look and wonder, you know, where, first of all, where did this year go? It seemed like it's just gone away so fast. And so I thought, well, I think I'll check in and see what happened in our world over this past year. So I googled, you know, major events 2012. It was amazing how much negative things happened this past year. I had a hard time trying to find some good things. I did, but it was dominated by the news, by just, just terrible things that have gone on in our world. It kept reminding me, well, it's the world in which we live. I mean, you know, why, why wouldn't these things happen? So as we look towards the end of the year, we can evaluate our lives. We look at the world in which we live, the tragedies that have happened, the great things that have happened, uh, whether it be individual or as a church body or in the world at large, that we can go back and, and see that God is still in control. And that's the main, main thing. But at this time of the year, many people, uh, I quit this a long time ago because I couldn't keep resolutions, but many people obviously get to this time of year and get out a piece of paper and write down what their New Year's resolutions are. And I just, before we get started, I just wanted to give you some of those. Maybe you can relate to them, maybe not. Here are the top 10 resolutions for 2012. Number one, lose weight. Number two, get organized. Number three, spend less and save more. Number four, enjoy life to the fullest. Number five, staying fit and healthy. Number six, learn something exciting. Number seven, quit smoking. Number eight, help others in their dreams. This is a good one. Nine, fall in love. And number ten, spend more time with family, which I thought is just, (coughs) excuse me, appropriate at this time. What are the statistics on New Year's resolutions? The percent of Americans who usually make New Year's resolutions is 45%. Recent uh, percent of Americans who infrequently make them is 17. Percentage of Americans who never make New Year's resolutions is 38%. And percent of people who are successful in achieving their New Year's resolution, 8%. It's amazing that once we have a good intention, we're all fired up, and we start out great, and then we slowly start to wane away. That by February or March, when somebody says, how's your resolution going? What resolution? I forgot what it was. And so it is, as we look this morning in our passages, that we are a people that a lot of times need reminding, need to be repeated as we're telling stories, as we're reading something, as we're doing something, 
that our minds a lot of times, because the world in which we live are distracted in so many ways, we lose that. So as I was looking upon doing the message today, a month ago or more, I started looking at my own personally. and came to the conclusion that I started to wane in my commitment towards the Lord. I started to wane in my prayer time, my study time, my one-on-one time. And I know if I did, that many of you might as well during this last year. But this morning's message is a message of encouragement to restart, to reignite, to start afresh. Playing high school football, when I was a senior in high school, or junior, senior in high school, the coaches would send out scouts to other schools. And they would come back with a report, and the report would be who their strongest player was, if the quarterback was left-handed or right-handed, how far could he throw. Uh, Some of the guys that were there, especially for my benefit, I always had people I played against that were much larger than myself. But I learned how to go low and hit hard, and I got by. But there's time during the week when you practice, you exercise, you practice your plays, execution, all those things are preparing for that game. Wouldn't it be crazy to get on the bus and go to a field, get a, and then instead of getting out of the bus, all we do is we sit in the bus and say, you know what, we're, we're not going to play. Turn the bus around, we're, we want to go home. All that preparation would have been for nothing. And so it is in our life sometimes. Well, to build a foundation for what I'm going to speak on this morning, I want us to go back to Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And we're going back 40 years until we get to our message this morning in Deuteronomy. We're going back 40 years. And God is asking Moses to send 12 spies, a person from each tribe, into the promised land to check it out. The Lord instructs Moses to send the spies in the land of Canaan to recognize or for reconnaissance mission and bring back a report to Moses and the people before they entered into the promised land. Simple instructions were given. See if the land is fertile or barren. See what kind of people live there. Are there a lot of people? What's their strength like? See what their villages are like. Are they fortified or not? And bring back samples of their agriculture. Grapes, pomegranates, figs. They returned 40 days later with the report. And they explained how rich the land was, how fertile it was, how magnificent it was. But there were many large problems. The people were powerful. The cities were fortified. And there were giants living in the land. But Caleb, and Joshua as well, reassured the people that they should march right in with no concern of their adversaries because God had given them the promise that this was going to be their land. Then the people began to throw fit, crying, lashing out at Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron tried to remind the people that God loved them and how He has promised them this land, begging them not to rebel against the Lord. But the people would not back down from their protests to the point of wanting to stone Moses and Aaron. 
Then the Lord stepped in and asked, How can this nation not believe me after all of the miracles I have done among them? God was going to destroy them, but Moses stepped in and reasoned with the Lord, and the Lord spared his judgment. However, there's going to be consequences. If you're in Numbers chapter 14, verses 26 through 39, we get the consequence in its entirety. It's not a pretty picture. But I want to focus in on verses 33 and 35, 33 through 34. It says, And your children shall wander in the wilderness forty years and bear your hollert trees until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. You see, that generation was not going to enter the promised land. But after the number of days in which you search the land, even forty days, each day for a year shall you bear your iniquities, even forty years, and you shall know my displeasure. Wow. That's a consequence. Consequence of what? Disobedience. You know, disobedience is a funny thing. We, we have categories in which we disobey. The first thing is justification. Spies came back and said, there are overwhelming odds. Therefore, we can't go in. They're justifying that. Then they get to the real obedience where they rebel against Moses and Aaron to the point that they want to stone them to death. And then because of the disobedience, obviously there's consequences. This 40-day journey took 40 years and judgment followed them every year. Well, now let's go forward to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and this is where we're going to camp out this morning. This is where we're going to spend our majority of time Moses is about 120 years old here, and he's at the end of his life. And he's coming against the people of Israel, not just this one more time, but if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, there's many times that God is talking, or through Moses, commanding the people to keep his commands, keep his statutes, keep his laws. And we remember Moses and his life in blocks of 40. The first 40 years, he was a prince in Egypt. The next 40 years, he was in the land exiled in the desert. And these last 40 years, he's been with the nation of Israel on their trek to get to the promised land. But a trip that should have only taken days has turned into this 40-year ordeal. Why? Because of unbelief, rebellion, disobedience, idolatry, Well, the 40 years is up now and they're standing right at the edge of entering into the promised land. This land that God had promised them so many years ago. Deuteronomy is the second law and that's what the word really means in Latin or even the Greek is similar. But Moses was gathering the people in this period of time and he delivered a series of messages He writes those messages down and those messages become the book of Deuteronomy so that all the generations to come would have the same message. How true it is of us today. The message hasn't changed. It's still the same, isn't it? And so we stand with Moses here 
and the people on the brink of entering this promised land after hundreds of years of unfulfilled promise. Forty years of judgment. The hour has finally come. And they needed to be reminded of what God expects of them when they go into the land. Like I said before, a lot of times we need to hear the same thing over and over again to get it into our minds because there's so many things in this world that distract our thinking. And I think in God's grace, think about that. Forty years, He didn't leave His people. Forty years, He endured all the stuff that they did. But He still kept His promise. If you look back into the book of Deuteronomy, there are so many places in which God has continued to repeat these commands that I think it's encouraging for us today, for me personally, to understand that I am a person who forgets very quickly. Like I said, I'm a person who gets distracted very easily. And most of us, when we have those two combinations end up being complacent in our faith. So let's read verses 1 through 12. And that's going to be our text this morning. Read along with me. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the ordinances that the Lord God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into and occupy so that you and your children and your children's children may fear the Lord, your God, all the days of your life and keep all His decrees, His commandments that I am commanding you so that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently so that it may go well with you and so that you may multiply greatly in the land flowing with milk and honey as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk to them when you are at home, when you are away, when you lie down, when you rise up. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. And write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God has brought you into the land that He swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you a land with fine, large cities that you did not build, houses filled with all sorts of goods that you did not fill, hewn cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, and when you have eaten your fill... Take care that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Thank you for your word. Lord, we look at this not as something in the Old Testament or something that we don't have to pay attention to, but Father, as a freshness to each one who is here. There are so many things in store for us we don't even comprehend, Lord. And all you're asking for is our allegiance, our obedience to you. Lord, we don't know what this new year is going to bring, but we do know, Father, that you 
are unchangeable. Your promises are the same yesterday, today, and will be tomorrow. Father, I pray that we entrust ourselves to those promises when times are good and when times are bad. But Lord, that we know that You are a God who is faithful. And we thank You for this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we see the emphasis is a call to obedience. It's repeated all throughout this book. God will bless you. He will multiply your families. He will multiply your crops, your grain. He will defeat your enemies. If you do that, God will prosper and bless you. That's the theme of the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5.33 says, Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. <coughs> Deuteronomy 6.2 So that you, your children, and your children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give to you so that you may enjoy a long life. In Ezekiel 20.19 I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Verse 1 says, Now this is the command, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord God charged me to teach you to observe in the land that you are about to cross into so that your children and your children's children may fear the Lord your God all the days of life and keep His decrees, His commandments that I am commanding you so that your days will be long. Well, let's look at this. Commands. This term is applied to those parts of the law which contain the obligation the people are under to act according to the statutes and judgments that have already been established and which prohibit them by a penal sanction from acting contrary to the law. Statutes. To mark out, to define This term seems to signify the things which God has defined, that men might have a perfect copy of pure conduct, always before their eyes to teach them how they might walk so as to please Him in all things, which they could not do without such instructions as God has given in His Word. That's true for our life every day. So many times we use our own intellect or the intellect of our society, and we evaluate situation is through their eyes instead of looking at what does God's word have to say about the situation we're so quick to latch on to the ideas of our times to the philosophies. sometimes we lose track of God already has an answer and that's where we need to go ordinances to guard to keep safe over those parts of the divine revelation which exhorts men to watch their ways, keep their hearts, and promise them, in consequences, the continual protection and blessing of God their Maker. And in this phrase it says, do them. That is, live in continual practice of them. For by this they were separated from the nations of the world. And all these were to be in focus until Christ Himself came. In your first part of your outline, you have a little guy there holding his hand up to his ear. This is what God is saying through Moses. He's saying, Israel, 
listen, I have something I want to tell you. He says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe them diligently, so that it may go well with you. God is to be heard. His commandments must be understood. And in understanding those commands, they must be observed. Hear, O Israel, these are the words that Moses is stirring up the people, getting their attention. I mean, if you were about to cross into a land that was promised to you, wouldn't you want to get everything together and organize and say, okay, one last time, people. Like if we were going into a football game, the coach used to gather, and you see it on the field even today, everybody huddles around a, a center person or people, and they might do a chant. They might pray. But it's a time to gather everybody together. Okay, guys, this is it. We're getting ready. Don't forget what we've prepared for. Don't forget what God has said. We're getting ready to go into this land. Yes, there's going to be opposition, but God's with us. It's a reassurance, an encouragement. As I look to this last year, and I remember getting up towards the election, how anxious people were about the outcome of the election. And I remember afterwards talking with people, seeing people on the news and everything, whether you're for or against. They were either happy faces or sad faces. And it dawned on me that, guess what? God is still in control. I mean, that's where my mind went to avoid getting sucked into all the minutiae of what was going on. I had to remind myself. I had to gather myself and say, okay, remind me again who's in control? Oh, yeah. God puts kings in place and takes them out. That ministered my heart, and I could let go of whatever antagonism or feelings I had at that time didn't matter. But God wants them to hear, to listen. He wants them to also understand that the Lord our God is one. See, there. While they were traveling through this land, they witnessed many polytheistic trains of thought, uh, psychologies, worships, whatever. Every god had, or every nation had a type of god. As we look into the New Testament in Rome, a lot of their Caesars were looked upon as gods. But it's no different than today. We elevate people a lot of times to that place, not basically of a God, but somebody of such importance that maybe we should listen to them instead of listening to God. God's reminding them, the Lord, our God, is one, not all these others. And He wants to reassure them that because He chose them, that because of that proclamation of one God, there is going to be opposition. How many of us face opposition when we express our faith? Just get in a conversation and mention Jesus, and all of a sudden it's like the Merrill Lynch commercial. Everybody stops. I think it was Merrill Lynch, wasn't it? Must have been, or another one, where everybody stops. 
to listen. You see, there's no need to divide our allegiance. We only need to love the one true God. And as we go through this, we're going to love Him with every part of our being. True obedience and love for God depends on the right knowledge of God. No one will love God and keep His commandments who is not acquainted with Him, who doesn't know Him, who doesn't understand Him. You know, the same can be true for anyone in what they do and what they trust in in our world. Some people put their faith in security, certain values. They prioritize things differently. They pursue things that are gained for themselves. The world in and of itself seems on a path to explore everything else there is out there except God. In so many ways, God has been taken from us in public places, but you know what? God can never remove the relationship you have with Him from your heart. In the command, listen Israel, we are reminded of our need to carefully listen to the message of God's Word. For a loving, worshipful, and obedient response to God, we must be regularly listening and hearing and experiencing fellowship with Him. Thirdly, the preservation of our joy and fellowship with God and love for God takes care and it takes action. It's a constant fight, isn't it? Say when you want to study, you want to pray. Um, I know Shelley's been quiet this week and knowing that I'm preparing for the message and I don't know if that was because of her choice of doing that because we know in our house that when I'm preparing for something, there's opposition. There's going to be some situations in our house that are going to cause either one of us to fly off the handle. <clears throat> and if it wasn't by choice, dear, I'm, I'm appreciative of how God used that because it really helped. But it's a constant fight and a call to diligence and alertness. Why are we called for diligence and alertness? First, because we have a sinful nature. We build our own securities. We camp on our own understandings. We see with a dim light. And as a song says, we are prone to wander. Secondly, the reason why we must be diligent and alert is that we have an enemy in this world, Satan, who is constantly trying to figure out any way he can to distract us from where we need to be with, with the Lord. And thirdly, the world in which we live is a distraction. It's absolutely essential that we live in God's Word because the nature of Scripture as God-breathed and profitable for doctrine and teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction or training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 That's why we need to listen. And what about love? Love is used in our societies, just a flippant word. It wasn't very flippant in this context. 
says, you shall love the Lord your God. That little word, your, designates a personal relationship. As an individual, as a church, as a society, it's your God. He's the object, should be the object of our love. This is what drives our obedience to God. That our Lord uses in the New Testament accounts in the book of Matthew and also in Mark that I read this morning. And that is the word agapeo. Which is the love of intelligence. The love of will. The love of purpose. The love of choice. The love of sacrifice. The love of obedience. Not filio, which is the love of attraction. Big difference. It's the sense of love that connected to the fear of God, the awe of God, the holiness of God. He is worthy of our affection and certainly we should give Him our affection. What God basically wants from us as He did from Israel at that time is their wholehearted love and loyalty, their obedience to the terms of the covenant relationship He had with them. He asks the same of us today. There is another reason why that this is the greatest commandment. It is the one in which all other obligations depend. If God is not loved and honored as the supreme authority, no other authority can claim any allegiance, whatever, from the people. If we don't love God, how can we love anybody else? We do. But I'm talking about a love that's different. I'm talking about a sacrificial love. I know that many times when people get married, we look at Corinthians 13, the love chapter. And it's not all about emotion and feelings. There's action in loving another person. And when you love another person, there's sacrifice in that love. Those of you who've been married for any length of time understand that. Those of us who have children or grandchildren understand that. And it's equally the same whether you're single or not. You understand that if you have somebody in your life that you truly love. So the purest, noblest, highest, most comprehensive, most exhaustive, most complete love is given to that one true God. There is only one God and therefore you cannot be divided. So you must give Him all of that. What's the manner in which we love? Well, I'll give you five things here. We are to love with a sincere love. Not in word and tongue only, saying we love Him when our hearts are not with Him, but inwardly, in truth. We are to love Him with a strong love. Our hearts must be carried out towards Him with great adoration and affection and worship. He that is our all must have our all. We must love Him with a dedicated love. We must love God above any creature or thing whatsoever and love Him besides, and love nothing else besides Him. We must love Him with an intelligent love. To love Him with all our heart, with all our understanding, we must know Him and therefore love Him 
as those that see good cause to love Him. And we must love Him with an entire love. He is one. And therefore our hearts must be united in this love. And the whole stream of our affections must run towards Him. That's a tall order. I don't think any of us here in this room can do all those things. I know I can't. I haven't. Without Him, I can't do any of these things. Then it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all. Interesting little preposition here. What's amazing is that in the verses it says, with all. It doesn't say with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, but it says with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. The emphasis is on each one of those, which God is wanting to make a point when He does that. It's not condensed. He places equal emphasis on each one of those characteristics. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. No one is able to serve God and mammon, possessions, whatever you want to put there. Your heart cannot be divided. Your worship, your love cannot be divided. What is the action of how we love? Here it is. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then in Mark, Jesus adds, with all your strength. Deuteronomy 4.29, But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find Him. And you look for Him with all your heart and with all your soul. Deuteronomy 10.12, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul? Deuteronomy 13.3, You must not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love Him with all your heart, with all your soul. Wow. And it's consistent through the book of Deuteronomy. So it must be important. Let's look at the word heart. The term heart and soul sometimes can be uh, exchanged and used together to show the complete person. But that's why we are to love Him with our heart, soul, and mind, as Moses put, and our strength, as Mark uh, writes down in the Gospel. Should these things be broken down? Are we conscious of the differences with these things? What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? What are we talking about? The heart in the Hebrew understanding is the core of our identity. It's the source of our thoughts, words, and actions. In Proverbs 4.23 it says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It is the core of your being. So love the Lord your God with the deepest, purest, truest part of who you are. Your deepest identity. It brings out the concept of the inner person. That which is the center of our life. Our relationship with God is the central and paramount relationship we should have. God should not be a side issue or a once a week commitment. He is not like a dose of medicine that we take only when we're sick. That kind of activity becomes mere religion 
which neither glorifies God nor results in the kind of interchanges that we need as God's representative people. When we look in our society, many religions are given the moniker Christianity. But not all are true Christianity. Outward appearances, a lot of times, don't reflect an inward commitment. We should be the other way around. Our inward commitment should promote our outward action so that people have no no argument of where we're coming from and who we are. In the business world, it's most of you who live in a business world or do things in the business world, very difficult to live your faith outwardly. Sometimes it's just by the actions that you do. Maybe it's some words that you might say. But there's a place God allows you to really be the person that He's called you to be. There are opportunities sometimes when people come up and are in a place where they really need God's truth. And I pray that as that time arises that you will be listening for God's voice to tell you, now, go forward. What is loving Him with all our soul? It describes the life force of who we are, personalities. A soul can often also refer to the physical life. To love God with all our soul or life means to be willing to give one's life to God and to devote it all to Him. It means a total commitment. Total commitment. Many of us have various personalities, as we all know. Some of us are funny. Some of us are more critical. Some of us are intellectual. Some of us are whatever. But those personalities should be affected by our relationship with God. So that when we express them, we express them from His perspective, not ours. Here's a tough one. Our mind. I am amazed at how much technology there is that exists out there. I know (laughs) there are people here, my son-in-law is one of them, who just knows this this stuff back to front, forward, reverse. I know enough just to get me in trouble and to maintain certain things. But it's amazing that we have this technology and I think a lot of times what happens is we don't rely on our mind. We go somewhere to get an answer and we absorb that answer and that's it. You know, you look through God's Word and I was reading through the book of Deuteronomy preparing for this. And a little footnote said, you've got to go back to Numbers 13, 14. I said, why? Went back to Numbers in 13, 14. Went, whoa, that's where it is. I knew it was there, but I didn't know exactly where it was. And then going through that whole process of the preparation and all those things that God had in store for them 40 years earlier, and because of their disobedience and rebellion, said, okay, God will give you what you want if you want to be disobedient. Believe me, God doesn't want to force you into anything. But there's going to be consequences. In our mind, you've heard, is a powerful thing. If we don't infiltrate our mind with God's truth, what we think how our thought process is, what our perspectives are, 
will be tainted by the world in which we live. Are there good things in the world? Absolutely. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but our main priority should be infiltrating our mind with God's truth first and foremost so that when we come against things in this world, we can see them from the right perspective. It means also that we are not to lean on our own understanding. But we are to bring everything into captivity to His truth. And finally, strength or might. It refers to our abilities, our talents, our gifts, our physical powers. All of these are to be surrendered and devoted to Him for His glory. We are not to lean on our own strength, but we are to use our strength as we lean by faith on Him. Every fiber of our being, every aspect of our lives is to be caught up and focused on the majesty and essence of God and His matchless grace. Here's three little things you can remember. This means we need to recognize God as our source, our force, and our course. Our our source, our reason for being. Our force for life and means of living. Our course for direction and destination. It's kind of a cool little thing. Psalm 62, 5-8 says, My soul waits in silence for God only, for my hope is in Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rests. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in Him in all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Encouraging words. However, it's not very true in the unbelieving world and oftentimes in the Christian population as well. God has given us all things to enjoy, but only as they are secondary to our love for Him and come under His control and direction. Otherwise, not only will we not be able to truly love Him, but we will be like the restless sea, unable to enjoy the life He gives. The reality is the simple... Reality is when we fall short in obedience and submission to God. That's the reality. We're all going to fall short. What's the goal? Loving God with our total person must become our desire and our goal. What's the danger? The danger is knowing that we will always fall short. And that becomes an excuse. And that excuse becomes complacency. What's the need? The need is concerned and broken hearts with a change of mind that affects our lives. How can we serve unless we love? Number three, learning. We have listen, love, and learn. And these are the words. Verses 6 through 9. These are the words which I am commanding you today. They shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit, when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. 
and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Maybe later on you can go through and circle how many times you see you and your. Throughout those verses, I counted about 12 times that you and your. Again, it's personal. It first has to be personal. And then in verse, uh, excuse me, then it says in verse 10, getting ahead of myself, it's talking about teaching them. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. And this verb means to sharpen or repeat. That seems to be the basic emphasis of this. And it says you should repeat them morning and evening. You shall talk about them. Whatever your activity is during the day. It's your responsibility, parents, to pass on that lifestyle of faith to your kids. And also us as grandparents, we're not exempt from that. Sunday school cannot be a substitute for the home. Neither can church in training your children. I thank our Sunday school teachers for their diligent commitment and faithfulness to teach our children. But that is not the primary place. It should be in the home. In our society today, we have such ideas as let's leave the kids alone and let them make up their own minds when they get old enough. How many of us as parents and grandparents would say, go ahead, touch the stove, then you'll learn it's hot. Go ahead, take that piece of food, it's spoiled, but you'll get sick and you'll know you shouldn't do it. We as parents and grandparents do these things to protect our kids, right? God's no different. He's given us these things to protect us. And we, in part, give them to our children to protect them. Lord knows that the world in which my father grew up in is not the same world we live in today. The values and things that were current 50 years ago almost are non-existent today. And we're called narrow-minded because of it. Well, be that as it may, our responsibility is to make sure that our kids understand this faith. And as they grow, it gives them stability. It gives them a place to communicate with their parents, grandparents. It exposes them to a relationship with God at an early age. So parents and grandparents, be encouraged that that's part of our responsibility. I'm learning that, having two little ones. One is three and one is nine and a half months old. As I said, the the three-year-old doesn't quite get it yet. And I know the nine and a half month old doesn't. (coughs) But it doesn't keep us from praying at our meals or talking about church or different things, exposing them to that. Because I want my grandkids to be protected from the world in which we live. Verse 8 says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and the frontals of your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. From the earliest days, the Jews understood these verses as literal requirements. 
the frontals between the eyes, the binding of the commands on their hands and putting them on the doorposts and gates led to three kinds of things that they were instructed and they were honored. And you might have heard of these, but one was the sitzeth or fringe at the four corners of the outer garment. It's the name for a specially knotted ritual fringe worn by observant Jews. It's attached to the four corners of the prayer shawl. The Torah states in Numbers 15.38, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them that they shall make themselves fringes on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and they shall put them on the corner fringe, a blue thread. Wearing this is commanded also in Deuteronomy 22.12. You shall make yourself a twisted threads on the four corners of your garment with which you recover yourself. This was a reminder of the Jewish religious obligations. Again, a reminder. Then we have what they called, or what we've seen as phylacteries. Small boxes about one cubic inch in size containing scriptures. Some commentators tell us that there were four scripture passages inside these small containers. Two two from Exodus and two from Deuteronomy. I'll have those. But it again serves as a reminder of God's intention at the time of the Exodus. As long as this was worn on the head and on the arm of a man, he is modest and God-fearing and will not be attracted by hilarity or idle talk. He will have no evil thoughts, but will devote all his thoughts to truth and righteousness. That's impossible for me. Maybe for you too. But it's a reminder. And the next one is the mezuzah. Many of us have seen that. Maybe if we visited houses of friends or in my line of work, uh, when I go to a customer, a lot of times they'll be on the doorpost as you walk into the door. Be be on the right-hand side. It's also a container that is placed on the right hand of the doorpost of Jewish houses. They were also for doorposts and for gates. The sign was to be worn on that doorpost and house representing the family unit and upon the gates representing the community or the village. A pious Jew touches the mezuzah on each occasion of passing or kissing his finger and says in Hebrew, Jehovah will keep thy going out and thy coming in from this time forth and forevermore. That's a great reminder. Inside were it was a decorative piece. If, you, if you've seen them, they can be made out of wood, sometimes plastic. Some are ornate, some are not. But in this is this passage we're looking at in Deuteronomy 6.4 and also Exodus 13, 1-10. It is, our, O Israel, hear the Lord our God, the Lord is one. These are reminders God is telling them and relating to us that we need reminders. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And if God says, Ken needs a reminder, I need to listen to what He is saying. What good is it to hear something and not do something about it? In this case, hear means as to do. 
So it's not only hear what I'm saying, but go do what I'm saying. As we look to our next year, we have two days left in 2012, but as we look to 2013, some people are superstitious and figure the number 13 is going to be nothing but chaos. Doesn't matter. I'm reminded by God's Word who's in control, as I said before. The last part of our outline is how are we to live? Verses 10 through 12 says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, houses full of goods and things you did not fill, hewn cisterns you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, and you shall eat and be satisfied. Then he says, watch, be careful lest you forget the Lord who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Wow. How many times have you been in a situation, in a crisis situation, and you cry out on the Lord, and the Lord brings you through that? Days, weeks, months later, the intensity dissipates because you've got through the crisis and you start to get comfortable again. God's saying, be careful. I have provisions for you. Some you don't even know about yet. And when I release them and show them to you, don't forget and get comfortable because the world in which you live is against you. So don't put your faith in your bank account. Don't put your faith in your job. Don't put your faith in your government. Don't put your faith in other people. The thing here is is that we are distracted in so many ways that we forgot how to live for God in the world in which we live. My reminder this morning is encourage you to look in your own lives as I've looked in mine. I fall short of every one of these things. But my desire is to improve on these things. Can I watch less TV? Absolutely. Can I do less mind-numbing things on the computer? Sure. Can I spend less time out doing something else? Absolutely. But it's what I fill that time with that is going to be profitable or not. When you prepare for a message, it's easy to get sidetracked. But the other side of that is, boy, you're focused. You're focused in on what God is laying upon your heart and what you want to speak about. Boy, I pray that this continues for me through this coming year. That's my desire. That's my heart. That's what I want to do. And I hope that It's something that you desire to do as well as we look into this next coming year. How can we know unless we listen? How can we serve unless we love? How can we teach unless we learn? And how can we show Christ unless we live like Christ? Father, thank You for Your Word 
Lord, this is truly, for me, it has been encouragement. And I, I pray, God, for everyone who is here, it's an also encouragement. <clears throat> there are tough things to hear. There are consequences. How many times did you tell the, your nation to listen, to hear what you were saying? How many times did they turn their back? Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Thank You that You've provided a way and a power, not in and of ourselves, but through Your Holy Spirit. The amazing thing is, God, is nobody can do any of this unless they know You first. Unless they love You first. We can do things from the outside and look like we know You, but it's empty, Lord. I pray that this morning, if there are any be here that do not know You, do not have that desire, that love for You, that God, they can't even attempt any of these things until they begin that relationship with You in Christ. Father, I pray that if anybody here is continue, continually seeking and searching, let them restart their life this coming year by committing their life to You. We hold ourselves back because we're sinful. But Christ, You came into this world to forgive. To give us new life. To separate us. To give us understanding and truth. To help make Yourself known in this world through us. God, I pray that if there's those here who have that desire, that they would cry out to You, Lord, because of Your grace and mercy, to bring You to that place of understanding and knowledge to know you personally. Father, we thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.